Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today on the show, I'm happy to present Dr. Robert Lustig. He is a professor of pediatrics, division of endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood, obesity, and diabetes. He wrote the book Fat Chance and has a new book out now called Metabolical. Please enjoy. Dr. Robert Lustig, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Well, um, thanks for having me. I'm not sure if you're calling me a glutton or if otherwise, but uh, I am here. <laughs> I'm really calling myself, I've been calling myself a glutton. Um, you know, I, I've I've lost a lot of weight in the past 20 years, but uh, but I still have the propensity for gluttony, for that deadly sin, as it were. Understood. Um, I'm really fascinated by your book, Metabolical. And I think that, you know, while I'm not certainly here to say, yes, thank you. Well, well, I, I, I never take the position that, um, I necessarily think of, of health as a, a moral thing. I do think there are a lot of people who desire health and, and maybe don't understand how to get there or trapped within this system that it's hard to navigate. And so I'm interested in helping people find that. And no better has the last couple of years been at presenting um, very immediate repercussions from not being optimally health healthy. Well, so I will argue that we are in this, in this country, we still are arguing about whether healthcare should be a right or a privilege. But I think that everyone can get on the same page that health is a right, not a privilege. The problem is that it seems like there are a lot of people who are unhealthy. And there was a paper that came out three years ago that showed that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. Wow. That's so even higher than the obesity rate. In fact, th that's right, because people think that being unhealthy equates with being obese. That is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. So 20% of the obese population are metabolically healthy. They will live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They're just fat. Is that, but I mean, that, that sounds like very close to the same level of just the, the overall population. Pretty much, pretty much. But bottom line is they have subcutaneous fat, big butt fat, if you will. Cosmetically undesirable, as in, does this bathing suit make me look fat? Sure. <laughs> Which of course, you never answer. Um, male uh, or female. I have four daughters and a wife. I never answer those questions. Never answer that question. It never uh, makes you look fat. Absolutely. Okay. Big butt fat, cosmetically undesirable, but metabolically inert. Conversely, and this is what's important, 40% of the normal weight population have the exact same diseases as do the obese. Normal weight people get type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, too. That's 75% of the healthcare burden in this country. 40% of the normal weight population get those same exact diseases. They're just not obese. They don't have 
subcutaneous fat, which you can measure on the scale or in the you know, fitting room at Bloomingdale's. What they have is visceral or big belly fat. And what we've learned is that the most egregious of the visceral or big belly fat is actually the big liver fat, the fat in your liver. So as it turns out, in order for your big butt fat to make you unhealthy, you need about 10 extra kilos to start, maybe 22 pounds. For your big belly fat to make you sick, you only need about two to three kilos, about five pounds of belly fat to make you sick. But you only need about a half a pound of liver fat to make you sick. Now, do you think you can measure that half a pound on a scale? Do you I mean, think there's got to be some way to measure it, right? Some there is. right. But yeah, you there can't is. get on a scale and go, I'm a half a pound heavier. It's all in my liver. You don't know that. That's the point. You don't know that. And in fact, there are people walking around right now who have a half a pound of fat in their liver, but because their bathing suit still fits, they think they're fine and they're not. So we have a name for this. It's called TOFI, T-O-F-I. Thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Real medical term, 1,500 Medline citations coined by Dr. Jimmy Bell of University College London, a neuroimager. So that's my question to your audience right now, today. Are you a TOFI? How, uh, How could you know? Well, would this be when I have blood work done and the guy says my liver looks okay? Is that, am I, am I avoiding being a TOFI in that sense? Or do I actually have to have an ultrasound? Well, so the question is, when he says your liver looks okay, what's he looking at? I ha- Listen, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. Some numbers that the blood oh. panel shows. So, in fact, those numbers can be very helpful, and they can tell you a lot if you know how to interpret them. And I'm here to tell you that doctors don't know how to interpret them. So in my book, Metabolical, right here, this one, okay, on, in chapter nine, I basically explain what all those numbers mean and how to interpret them okay. so that you can actually interpret them better than your doctor. Okay. Now, let me give you an example of why this whole field is so screwed up. There's a test that tells you about liver fat. It's called ALT, alanine aminotransferase. It is a standard chem panel test. So when you go in for your annual blood draw, they're getting this number. And so you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, your ALT is normal. What was the number? What was the number? Yeah. Well, you don't know. You just said you, they they tell you it's normal. Well, I don't trust them. I don't believe them. And here's why I don't believe them. When I entered medical school in 1976, the upper limit of normal for ALT was 25, 25 international units per liter. That's that was the upper limit today on that lab slip. When you get that ALT, you know, there's another column right next to it with an H or an L high, low. Okay. The upper limit of normal is 40. Oh, wow. It's almost doubled. Same assay measuring the same thing used to be 25. Today it's 40. Yeah. How come? You tell me, why is that? Because the entire curve has shifted to the right. So how do you figure out what a normal level of anything is? You take 10,000 people, you draw their blood, you run them all, okay? And you take all the people out you know are sick, and you look at the Gaussian distribution, the bell-shaped curve around that, and you draw lines at plus two and minus two standard deviations. And you say anything above that, that's abnormal, all right? Well, that's assuming that the standard deviation is the same, you know, from one year to the next, but it's not. In fact, everyone now has liver fat. 45% of America has fatty liver disease and they don't know it. So when they go in, they say they're healthy, but they're not. 
they're metabolically ill because 88% of Americans are metabolically ill. And this is one of the ways that they're metabolically ill, but they don't know it. Right. So the lab doesn't know what to do. So they take all the numbers and they say, oh, okay, now the upper limit of normal because of the two standard deviations from the mean is at 40. Right. No, it's not. It's at 25. Okay. Is this going to happen also with whatever standard weights are? Or has this been happening with the, the I forget, the booty fat, uh, big butt <laughs> fat, fat, I forget what well, it's called, the differentiating, but, but as uh, we grow larger physically, yeah. are these standards going to change also? So will somebody be considered lean at 15 or at 20% body fat in the future? So what I'm going to say is that we don't yet have a good measure of the ectopic fat, which causes disease. Ectopic meaning the muscle and liver fat that cause disease. Now, you can get it. You can get it from a DEXA scan. You can get it from an MRI. You can get it from various things. But these are expensive and, you know, not something you can employ, you know, uh, on mass for large populations. So, you know, we're still stuck with BMI and BMI body mass index. That's, you know, weight over height squared. Um, that works for populations. It doesn't work for individual people. That's the problem. So yes, when uh, an entire population's BMI advances, that means that a significant portion of those people will have an increase in their ectopic fat, and therefore they will be sicker. So yes, in a population, BMI, an increase in BMI means an increase in illness. True. Don't argue that. However, when we're getting down to the individual patient, you don't know if that increase in BMI was because they have more fat in their liver or fat in their muscle or, you know, fat in their, uh, 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 you know, uh, belly, uh, or whether or not it's, you know, booty fat, in which case, you know, um, only Kim Kardashian cares. I've, I've oh. had a bunch of DEXA skins and I, I, I never pay attention to that, that fat that you're talking about. Cause it's always so much less then there's like two different fat readings and there there are three different fat readings okay and there are three different causes of metabolic syndrome because of the three different fat readings so this is what doctors need to understand and this is why i wrote the book there's not one metabolic syndrome there are three don't go anywhere we'll be right back One is because of, you know, markedly increased subcutaneous fat. Now, why is the subcutaneous fat not as dangerous as the visceral or the liver fat? The answer is because the subcutaneous fat drains into the general systemic circulation. Okay. So this is a little bit, you know, this requires a little bit of understanding of physiology and anatomy, but I'm going to do my best to try to, you know, explain this to your audience in, in a way they can understand. Okay. okay. All right. Everywhere in the body, blood goes like this, heart, aorta, artery, organ, vein, inferior vena cava, heart. In other words, the blood passes through one organ, not two, and then comes back. Okay. So the blood goes from the heart to the subcutaneous fat and then back to the heart. So the subcutaneous fat, when it makes bad proteins called cytokines, because there's inflammation going on. It gets diluted out in the general systemic circulation, and the general systemic circulation has six liters. Okay? Okay. So when the fat makes inflammatory proteins, it's being diluted in a large volume. So the concentration only goes up a little bit, and your liver can't see it because it's only going up a little bit. But... The visceral fat, the belly fat, 
the blood goes like this, heart, aorta, artery, visceral fat, portal vein, liver, inferior vena cava, heart. So it's almost collecting the fat as it goes. It's right. It's basically the difference between series and parallel, you know, in electronics. Okay. It's going through two organs instead of one. It's going through the visceral fat and then it goes to the liver. And so when the visceral fat accumulates and starts making those bad proteins, those inflammatory cytokines, they are now at much higher concentration because the portal vein is not the whole systemic circulation. It's only say, instead of six liters, it's only about a quarter of a liter, okay? And it's draining straight into the liver and the liver is the primary target of these inflammatory cytokines. And so now the concentration is much higher. And so now the liver sees a big concentration. And so it starts acting funky. It starts being a problem. It develops insulin resistance, liver insulin resistance because of those um, signals from the visceral fat reaching the liver at high concentration. And now you get sick. And you got sick because of the visceral fat rather than the subcutaneous fat. And that's why a little increase in subcutaneous, uh, a little increase in visceral fat is much worse than a big increase in subcutaneous fat. Got it. And now, so that's the second reason. And now the third reason is what if the liver, what if the fat's in the liver directly, causing problems straight at the liver? Right? And that's what soft drinks do, because that is basically mainlining fat right into your liver, because only the liver can metabolize the sweet molecule and sugar. And what it does is it turns it into fat. Right. And so that's why 45% of America now has fatty liver, whether they're obese or not, because their liver is turning excess sugar into fat. Right. And so that's the third metabolic syndrome. And because the fat's right there, now your liver's really sick. So three different fat depots, three different potentials for disease. But of those three, the one that's the least important is the fat you can see. The ones that are the most important is the fat you can't. For general health. For general health, for individual people. For, from the perspective of a doctor. From the perspective of a doctor, not from the perspective of, of an epidemiologist. Sure. Because they're only interested in populations. Yeah. And so they only have data on BMI. All right. And so this is where the problem between you know, the public health person and the doctor comes is trying to interpret this difference. Right. So I'm both. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to do in the book is explain the difference and why we care and why it's this um, uh, ectopic fat, the liver, the muscle fat, that is the real problem and what causes that. And that's why 40% of the normal weight population have the same diseases and they don't know it. Yeah, I've talked They're a lot in, about, yeah. And they're costing the healthcare system even more than the obese. There are actually more thin sick people than there are fat sick people, but the thin sick people are calling the fat sick people the problem. Right. Uh, it's it's very difficult too because many people wear this disease with with no visibility on the inside, right. even That's in right. terms of cholesterol and heart disease and stuff like that. You can't see that a lot of the time, and so it That's is. It is a very tricky thing to do. I don't like demonizing fat people. I personally was very unhealthy and morbidly obese and have turned that around and, and now have, as I said, I'm going to go back to my doctor and say, was I on the high range of normal in my liver test? You said it was fine, but like, let's really get to the bottom of this. You need the number. You need the number. And it's not just ALT. I mean, ALT is a good example, but uric acid is another one. 
Okay, the upper limit of normal on that lab slip for uric acid is seven. And so are these that's things- that's not right. All right. It's really 5.5. Are these all caused by sugar? Yes. Okay. Yes, they are. In fact, um, uric acid, you know, Ben Franklin famously wrote an ode to his gout. Right. And he knew what caused his gout, sugar and alcohol. Exactly right. All right. So this has been known for a long time. David Perlmutter has a new book coming out next month called Drop Acid. And it's about uric acid. Okay. <laughs> it's not about LSD. Uh, it's about yeah, uric acid. title, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, good, a very good play on words. Um, but the point is uric acid is a major linchpin in cellular functioning because uric acid inhibits mitochondria. Uric acid inhibits the enzyme that brings um, fatty acids into the mitochondria for burning, okay, called CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1. And if you, uh, Rick Johnson from uh, University of Colorado in Denver demonstrated this very clearly. So if you can't import the fats to burn, then your mitochondria aren't working. And if your mitochondria aren't working, guess what? You're not making ATP. And if you're not making ATP, guess what? You're sick. Right. Are we talking strictly about uh, fast acting? Like the, w w I have a kid with type one diabetes. So we definitely have a differentiation between, you know, if her blood sugar goes low, I'm not going to give her an apple. Um, she has to take some fast acting sugar, but I don't think about. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not so sure of that. I will tell you that I think, I think, I know, I think that, you know, for, for, I mean, I took care of type one diabetics for 40 years. Okay. Um, I think we overplay that. Okay. That's There's no awesome. question. There's no question that if you're on the downswing for hypoglycemia, which happens with type one diabetics pretty routinely, you know, almost on a daily basis, sometimes even more often than that. There's no question you have to get the blood glucose up. I don't argue that. The question is, what's the best way? Right. What's the best way? The dietitians will tell you, well, drink juice. Yeah. I think that's a terrible idea. Okay. Terrible. Could not I, be a stupider idea. We have, we have juice in our house and it is medicinal. It is like if another kid were to drink it, they would be yelled at. Right. Well, so the bottom line is that, yes, juice will raise your blood glucose rapidly, but then you will crash just as rapidly on the tail end, number one. What you need is you need a source of sustainable glucose that will keep the blood glucose up while that insulin is still working. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, what you need is some complex carbohydrate with some fat mixed in in order to delay and prolong the absorption. The best like a cracker with peanut, peanut butter, peanut butter crackers. That's the best answer is we, peanut we butter crackers. That. Yeah. That's well, that's better than juice. We have those. I get scared when it, when her blood sugar goes so low that she becomes slightly, um, I, I don't even almost inebriated. Not yeah, quite. Her, co her cognitive function, it, you know, is uh, is problematic. Yeah. And, you know, for that, for that, if you want to give a very small amount of juice and follow it up with a peanut butter cracker, that will suffice. But this notion that juice is the answer to hypoglycemia, and I see it all the time in, you know, my own hospital. I have been fighting this fight for the last 20 years about the role of juice in fixing hypoglycemia in the hospital. And the dietitians, you know, and we, we've had, you know, knock them down, drag them out fights over this. Right. And I think that juice is a mistake. So yeah. the question, here's the question. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get the glucose up, but you're also trying to get the cell to burn because really it's the cell burning that matters. Hypoglycemia causes damage because the cell can't burn because yeah. you're depriving the cell of the energy it needs to burn. Well, guess what? That fructose molecule, that sweet molecule in sugar, is not helping your blood glucose, by the way, right? Because it's fructose, it's different. What it's doing is it's inhibiting your mitochondria. Instead of stimulating it to burn, it's actually inhibiting it from burning. There are three enzymes in the mitochondria 
that are actually being inhibited by that fructose molecule that's in juice. Number one, AMP kinase, which is the enzyme that basically turns on the mitochondria and tells the mitochondria to divide. Number two, ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain. This is the enzyme that starts the fatty acid oxidation to turn it into ATP. And number three, the one I mentioned before for uric acid, CPT1, carnitine palmitate oil transferase 1. So in fact, that sweet molecule in sugar that you are giving your kid to raise the kid's blood glucose is actually having the exact opposite effect on the mitochondria to generate ATP. Now, how dumb is that? I mean, it is, it's very counterintuitive, though. It's very counterproductive as opposed, not just counterintuitive. Yeah. So this is not the way to take care of patients. Okay, but in for for non-diabetics, when we're talking yeah. about just glucose and and um, even in the in the universe where your body can transfer strict protein into glucose, there must be a difference between table sugar or a Coca-Cola and an apple, right? Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. And so your argument is not no carbohydrates. No, no refined carbohydrates. Okay. So, so the diff let's take the difference between an apple and apple juice. Yeah. Now, most people think they're the same. No, I know they're not the same. They're not the same. They are not the same. So an apple has fiber. Apple juice the insoluble fiber has been removed. The soluble fiber is still there. The pectins, the inulin, the stuff that holds jelly together, they're still there. So there are two kinds of fiber, soluble and insoluble. So soluble fibers like pectins, inulin, like what holds jelly together, like I said, and insoluble fibers like cellulose, like the stringy stuff in celery. Yeah. Now an apple has both. You need both. One will not do it. So there are six things that fiber does in your intestine to improve and promote metabolic health. Six, here they are. First, the fiber forms a gel on the inside of the duodenum, the first part of the intestine. And you need both fibers to do this. So imagine a fishnet with kelp. So if there's no fishnet, the kelp can't block the water flow. If there's no kelp, the fishnet can't block the water flow. Okay. But you put the two together and it blocks the water flow, right? And you have to clean out the kelp, right? When you're fishing for because of that, right? So imagine that the insoluble fiber is the fishnet and the kelp, the, the soluble fiber is the kelp. So the, insi the, the, the insoluble fiber forms a lattice work on the inside of the duodenum. And the soluble fiber, which are globular, plug the holes in the lattice work. And so together they form a barrier, a secondary barrier. And what that secondary, a gel, you can actually see it on electron microscopy, whitish gel that forms on the inside of the duodenum. And what that's doing is it's preventing the rapid absorption of glucose, fructose, simple starches from the intestine into the portal vein, thus protecting the liver so that the liver doesn't get overwhelmed. Because when the liver gets overwhelmed, it can't process all that glucose and fructose. It turns it, the excess into liver fat. And that's what you're trying to avoid. So you have to protect the liver. So the two together will protect the liver. Now, if you're not absorbing it, that means your blood glucose will not rise as high. And if your blood glucose doesn't rise as high, that means your insulin doesn't rise as high. And that will help you with weight loss. And because insulin is the driver of chronic metabolic disease, the goal is to get the insulin down. So the two together will do that. Right. The next thing that happens is, well, since you didn't absorb the uh, glucose or the fructose or the simple starches early, they go further down the intestine to the next part of the intestine called the jejunum. And what's in the jejunum that's not in the duodenum? The bacteria, the microbiome. So the duodenum 
is still at low pH, pH of one, because the stomach, you know, secretes hydrochloric acid. And so the bacteria can't live there. Okay. They can't live in the intestine until the pancreatic juice, which has lots of bicarbonate, gets injected. And that happens at the sphincter of Odi, halfway through the duodenum. And so then it mixes with the rest of the intestinal contents. And so by the time you reach the jejunum, the pH of the intestinal contents is now up to 7.4. And now the bacteria can grow. So the bacteria are later on. The goal is to get more food to them, to feed your bacteria, feed the gut. Right? And so if you didn't absorb it early, that means it's there for the gut to utilize for its own purposes. So even though you consumed it, even though it passed your mouth, guess what? You didn't get it. And this is why calories are irrelevant because it doesn't matter what you eat. It matters what you absorb. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And if you consumed it with fiber, then it wasn't for you. It was for your bacteria, which is a good thing. Right. Right? That's why calories are useless. Okay, We're trying to kill the calorie. All right? So that will happen if you have soluble and insoluble fiber together. Number four, the fiber will grease the skids and move the food through the intestine faster so that you can get the satiety signal at the end of the intestine sooner so you won't eat the second portion. Number five, that soluble fiber, the inulin and the pectins and stuff, that will serve to feed the colonic bacteria, bacteria in the colon, and they will turn that into short-chain fatty acids. And those short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory and anti-insulin, and so pro-metabolic health. And then finally, number six, the insoluble fiber, the cellulose, because it couldn't be acted on by anything, it will actually move through the colon and slough off cancer cells like little scrubbies, you know, basically taking all the cancer cells out. So if you consume insoluble fiber, you have a lower incidence of colon cancer. So six, count them, six different things that the fiber in real food does to improve your metabolic health. Now, Apple juice does two of those six because you've taken the insoluble fiber out when you converted the apple to juice. All right. Now, what is there? You... In, is there? Is there? Uh, are there the pectins in that in a cola? No. Not so it, it, it no. just has no. the sugar. It you reduced it down to one now. Right. That's right. No. Then it's zero. Oh, then it's zero. Nothing beneficial. Nothing beneficial if it's a cola. But in an apple juice, you get two out of the six. So it's not useless. On the other hand, it's not particularly useful. Well, I even think in in modernity, when we walk around, it's harmful, stuff like that, as prevalent as it is. Because the sugar, the, the toxicity of the sugar is way more detrimental than the little bit of soluble fiber is in terms of your short chain fatty acids. So that's what it comes down to is that apple juice is not apples. Apple juice is more like soda. Right. Okay. And apple sauce and apple sauce is more like apple juice than it is like apples. Really? All these people who are making smoothies. Yeah. They're destroying the insoluble fiber. If you put it, if you just put something in a blender, destroyed yep. that's destroyed because it's like a fishnet what if you took a fishnet and took a bunch of scissors to it would it work would you have a fishnet no no more fishnet you no more fishnet. a bunch of t- tissue i guess or, or that's what you don't have a bunch of pieces of plastic but you wouldn't have a fishnet right that's the point so keeping this stuff whole is important absolutely and that's so- why this whole smoothie you know craze you know, is basically just that. It is a craze, and the people who do it are crazy. Well, I, I've, I've, I, I even the the smoothie's got to be better than the juice, no? No, it's not. It's not. They're, it's they're equally bad. Equally okay. bad. Now, if it's a green smoothie, then there's nothing to protect the liver from, 
because you know there's very little sugar in it. Right. So it's not nearly as bad. Okay. But if it's a fruit smoothie, doesn't really matter. You might as well drink a soda. Right. I I I drink some whey protein daily, but everything else is is eaten. And I don't eat a lot of uh I don't eat anything really processed. I eat some very lean meat and vegetables and some rice or whole grain bread. That's kind of my my diet. Why do you eat lean meat? For the protein. Okay, but why lean? Uh, because when I eat fatty meat, I gain weight. Okay. Well, I'm not going to tell you that that's not true or that is true. I mean, you know your body better than I do. I'm just meeting you. Okay. What I'm here to say, though, is that, you know, this whole lean meat thing, okay, you know, developed out of this notion that saturated fat was bad. I don't think of it as bad. I just am trying to keep my energy balanced in a certain way. And when I eat, when I, I have, I want to eat more protein than fat. And so I gravitate towards lean. When I say lean, if it's ground beef, it's usually like, you know, 90, 10. Right. Well, the point is that the saturated fat story has been completely debunked. Right. You know, we thought saturated fat made you fat. That is not true. We thought that saturated fat caused heart disease. That is also not true. Neither of those are true. In fact, dairy saturated fat is actually protective against diabetes and heart disease. Mm. Because it, the dairy saturated fat is odd chain fatty acids with a different phospholipid signature even than animal, uh, you know, that, uh, than meat saturated fat that which is even chain without that phospholipid signature. So even you know, dairy versus red meat saturated fat are different from each other and have different metabolic uh, uh, import. Okay. So, so the bottom line is a calorie is not a calorie, a protein is not a protein, a carb is not a carb, and a fat's not a fat. So, so what and- is what? Well, that's why you have to read this book <laughs> to explain exactly what's going on there. Yeah. Okay. For just that reason. Okay. It's not what's in the food. It's what's been done to the food that matters. And that's the point I make in the book. All food is inherently good. It's what we do to the food that's not. Right. And what we do to the food, I mean, we do a lot of things to the food, but I can sum it up in two basic precepts, okay? We added sugar for palatability, especially when we took the fat out, and we took the fiber out for shelf life, right. both of which increased the profit margin of the food industry. Add sugar, remove fiber. Well, I've just shown you how sugar is toxic and how lack of fiber ultimately leads to metabolic dysfunction too. So this, these are the two basic reasons why we're all metabolically ill, because we eat ultra-processed food. Yeah. So here's my question to you, Ethan. Yes, sir. And I'm waiting for your answer. I'm, 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 I'm cringing, waiting to hear your answer. I can't wait for the question. Is ultra-processed food food? Uh, I mean, it it really depends on what your goal with food is. And I think for me in my life today, I am not trying to be entertained by food. And so, no, it is not food for me. And I try very hard not to think of it as food. Well, that's good for you. But how does that work for the rest of the world? Well, I think that there are many people who don't care, which is slightly heartbreaking to me but i also want people to be have the freedom to do with their bodies as they please number one number two i think a lot of people don't know and and that i find to be problematic well that's why we're having this podcast right now is you know to educate people so that they do know yeah i'm gonna give you a slightly different you know take on this sure okay is ultra processed food food Well, then you have to know the definition of food. So what's the definition of food? I think of it as fuel for the body. Yeah, it's half right. Okay. 
Okay, and here's the real definition. Substrate that contributes to either the growth or burning of an organism. Okay. I'm fine with that. You yeah, know, sure. Having been definition. in this field for 40 some odd years, I'm fine with that definition. Substrate that contributes to either the growth or burning of an organism. But what if a substrate does not contribute to growth? What if a substrate does not contribute to burning? What well, if now you have to define growth, Doc? Uh-huh. Okay, let's do it. Okay. So what if a substrate actually inhibits growth or burn and burn? So let's take sugar. I've already described to you the three enzymes in the mitochondria. Is it growth are, and burning or growth or growth, burning? It can be growth or burning. So okay. food can be either one. So okay. in order to, for something to not be food, then it would have to basically fail both tests. Right. Okay. Because if it passed either one, then it would be food. Yeah. Right? Sure. Okay. Right. So let's start with burning. I've already described the three mitochondrial enzymes that inhibit burning. AMP kinase, AKL, CPT1. So you're actually getting fewer ATP out because you consumed this fructose molecule. Now, it is true that if you take fructose and you throw it in a bomb calorimeter and you explode it, you get four calories per gram. Right. That's what the dietitians will tell you that sugar is energy. Therefore, it contributes to burning. That is if you are a bomb calorimeter, <laughs> if you are a human being where you don't have a bomb calorimeter, what you have is mitochondria instead, and you're inhibiting the enzymes that actually generate ATP, then you are inhibiting burning. So in fact, ultra processed food, which is the vehicle for sugar and 67% of the sugar that children eat is in ultra processed food are actually inhibiting burning. So strike one. Next. Now growth. Growth. Right. So my colleague, Dr. Efrat Monsenigo Ornan, who is the chairman of the Department of Nutrition at Hebrew University, Jerusalem, just published a paper. Took her four years to get this paper into press because of the food industry. But it's now in press. It's in bone research. And basically what it shows is that ultra-processed food actually inhibits skeletal growth. Wow. Causes a inhibition of growth at the level of the bone. Causes a decrease in calcium accretion into the bone and causes the bones to be shorter. So it's actually decreasing growth. And we also know that the hyperinsulinemia set up by sugar drives cancer development, so it drives abnormal growth, okay? And that, you know, sugar is a primary driver of cancer through this phenomenon known as the Warburg effect. So sugar and ultra-processed food as, you know, as its proxy actually inhibit growth. So you've got now ultra-processed food inhibiting growth and inhibiting burning. So it's not, it's not only that it doesn't do it, it's, it's a step further, it's inhibiting it. I hey, want- So what do you call, what would you call something that inhibited growth and burning? Which you, you certainly wouldn't call it a food. What would you call it? A poison. You, you would call it a poison. That's exactly poison. right. You would call it a poison. Ultra processed food is poison. Now, listen, I, I, I know the way big corporations work. And I think that if this was done, that you would just have a radical change in literature and definitions. That's what would happen. But I, I think you should, or somebody should organize a big class, class act lawsuit. We're working on it. Okay, good. I support that. I think that's great. It's, it's in process. Good. You know, I, I mean, I think like with the smoking industry, some people must know that this stuff is not, you know, you go to the gas station and there's, uh, again, I don't, you don't like this word, but there's a, a cornucopia of cheap calories um, that are very tempting, that taste delicious, that entertain the hell out of us. Yep. And yet they are poisoning us to some degree. And because sugar is addictive and the food industry knows that. And that's why when they add it, you buy more. So they add yet more again. And so that's why we're all sick as hell. Yeah. So they get rich 
and we get sick. Yeah. And I don't even want it to not exist. I, 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 from a moral place, I'm like, I'm okay if it exists. I don't want to eat it, but I think that people should understand what it's doing to them and well, then give, give them the choice. So the question, I don't drink alcohol. I don't want alcohol to disappear. So here's the question. Can education solve this problem? What I don't think educated everybody. What I mean, everybody got this information. Would that solve the problem? Well, education has not solved any substance of abuse. Right. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? Well, I would argue that her husband and his team in the CIA was kind of working against that success, but we had an opioid crisis. We had an opioid crisis. All right. Didn't work. All right. What fixed tobacco? What fixed alcohol? What fixed opioids? I don't know that any of those have been fixed, but we know now, like if you smoke, and you claim not to understand the effects of smoking cigarettes, I think you're probably a total moron. Well, the fact of the matter is, there are 15% of the American population are total morons then. And, and I, for me, morally, I'm okay with people doing that. If, they, if that's what they want to do, as long as they know going into it that this is like they're, they're ingesting real poison. Well, yeah, and then they're basically... Um, uh, Cause, causing you to have to pay for their medical illnesses. How are you okay with that? Listen, that gets into a whole other can of words. That I don't like, but I wouldn't mind seeing uh, black box warnings on a Kit Kat. That would, that would bring me some joy. Okay, so the question is, can this be regulated? That's really the question. So the public health community has come up with the criteria that are necessary to regulate a specific or given substance. And here they are, four criteria, and you have to meet all four, okay? Ubiquity, you can't get away from it. Got that. Toxicity. Seem to have that. Abuse, got that. (laughs) And finally, number four, externalities. In other words, how does your sugar consumption affect me. Right. Okay. So for tobacco, your smoking gives me asthma or in fact, lung cancer, secondhand smoke, lung cancer, you know, for alcohol, your drinking makes me in a car accident. Right. And then the argument with this is that it's a burden on healthcare. Right. So that's the question is, what is the externality of your sugar consumption? And the answer is no health care. Right. That's the burden. That's the that's that's what it comes down to, because Medicare will be broke by the year 2029 because of chronic metabolic disease, primarily driven by sugar. it's driven by ultra processed food, primarily sugar. Yeah. So the question is. Can sugar be regulated? Should sugar be regulated? It meets all four criteria. And tobacco and alcohol didn't come to heal until we did regulate it. Right. And opioids too. How, so, why, why is the past, because I feel like there's been such a spotlight on this, on exactly what you're talking about. In the last year and a half, with just the the effect of comorbidities on this disease that we've all encountered has yeah. been so massive, but yep. nobody, the, this is not a big deal to, well, to many people right now. So, so I'm going to tell you that this whole COVID thing has exploded this issue. My nonprofit, Eat Real, published a medical alert, basically telling the public that the CDC and the NIH have done us a disservice. And here's the disservice. They told us there were three ways that people could mitigate their risk. Right. Masking, social distancing, hand washing. And I'm all for all three of those. Don't get me wrong. Those are three really good things to do. But they left out number four. 
And I believe they left out number four on purpose. Well, I mean, it real, a, yeah, food, problem. real food. Yeah. Okay. Fact of the matter is when you go into the store, you know, during COVID, like the first six weeks, what was missing from the store aside from toilet paper? Okay. The Kraft macaroni and cheese. Okay. Kraft couldn't keep up with the macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Right. Um, there was plenty yeah. of produce. The candy, the pasta, the, all the refined carbohydrate and sugar was gone from the store. So how does processed food increase COVID mortality? And the answer is, if you look at the demographic groups that have succumbed the most to COVID, all right, the elderly, because they have an immune dysfunction, it's part of being old, okay? And then the other three demographic groups are people of color, the obese, pre-existing conditions. So what do those three demographic groups share in common? People of color, the obese, pre-existing conditions. They share one thing in common. I don't know. Ultra-processed food consumption. Okay. So how does this work? How does ultra-processed food make you die from COVID? Now, it doesn't make a difference in terms of whether you contract it. That's what the other three things are for, the masking, the social distancing, and the, um, and the uh, uh, hand washing. Okay, that's whether you contract it. But whether you die from it is all about your metabolic health. Okay, when your metabolic health sucks, COVID kills you. So how are these three demographic groups, how, how is COVID taking advantage of your poor metabolic health? And there are three ways. First way, the COVID virus injects its RNA into your cell to take it over. It has to have a way in, it has to have a door. That door is called ACE2, A-C-E-2 angiotensin converting enzyme two. This is a receptor, a protein receptor that sits on the surface of every cell in your body, which is why COVID can enter any cell in your body and causes all, the, all this havoc anywhere in your body, okay? Because every cell has an ACE2 because it's a, it's a regula it regulates water uh, um, in, influx and efflux, right? Well, the more ACE2 molecules, the more entry points for the COVID virus more chance you will get infected and quickly, and it will spread rapidly because you have more doors, all right? Well, turns out insulin, high insulin levels due to poor metabolic health, like we talked about before, increase the number of ACE2 molecules. So your ultra-processed food consumption by causing insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia increases your risk for rapid propagation of COVID-19. Uh, wow. Number two, high blood glucose. So if you're hyperglycemic because you are metabolically ill, okay, the glucose molecules actually crystallize around the outside of that ACE2 and hold it open so that the virus has even an easier time injecting its RNA, making it worse. And number three, those short-chain fatty acids we mentioned before, those suppress the cytokine response. They are anti-inflammatory. And we've learned that it's not the virus that kills you. It's the cytokine response that kills you. Okay, you're bas Basically, your immune system basically overdoing the, uh, the, uh, the effect. Okay, it's like a chain reaction. Okay, and you know, if uh, your, your inflammatory response is a chain reaction, and at some point you have to shut down the chain reaction or you will die because it will basically, you know, just go out of control and kill all the cells in your body while it's trying to kill the organism. All right. So you have to have the reins in in order to be able to do that. Well, short chain fatty acids are the reins, but the short chain fatty acids are from the soluble fiber you were supposed to eat because you ate real food. But if you didn't eat real food, you ate processed food, you don't have any short chain fatty acids. And so you don't have the reins. And so the cytokine response balloons out of control. And then you die from that. Yeah. 
So real food will help mitigate the negative effects of COVID. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Do you hear the CDC or the NIH talking about this at all? No, I don't hear. And I, I, it's, it's very much, uh, it seems like a very uh, taboo thing to even bring up. You know, I bring it up very hesitantly because I'm like, you know, guys, we have this real bad issue and the biggest problem seems to be health. Like if you're healthy, it doesn't seem to have such a bad effect. Indeed. But that's why, and if you look at where COVID's killing the most people, it's the most metabolically unhealthy states. Right. Gee, wonder why. <laughs> Duh. Yeah. So, so this is an absolute disaster. And, you know, both the Trump and Biden governments are, you know, guilty of this, that neither have dealt with it. And, you know, I'm uh, uh, I'm trying to do my part to try to fix the problem. But, you know, uh, I very much appreciate what you're doing. And, and I would love nothing more than to see a gigantic class action lawsuit against, you know, junk food. I think it would be wonderful. Well, well we're 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 in, it's in process. Yeah, that's fantastic. Dr. Lustig, I, th I thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been fascinating, and I think people get a lot out of it, and I hope everybody picks up Metabolical. Well, you know, bottom line is you can't fix a problem if you don't know what the problem is. That's right. I think we totally okay. agree. And yeah. for the last 50 years, we've been told that the problem is one thing, and it turns out that was completely incorrect. Right. Absolutely incorrect. And we have the data. We have the science. And we also have the politics. We have the 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 um the 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 you know dark underbelly of the food industry to show how this all transpired yeah. the, the, the book is half science and half expose right if it were a hollywood uh volume you know we'd call it a kiss and tell but you know because it's about diabetes it's really a piss and tell <laughs> i love it i can't wait to read it well you know, uh, maybe you'll have me back after. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks Bye. for having me. Bye-bye. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now for the Q&A. Here's one for you from Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hello, American Glutton. I have been doing keto for the past six months and lost 60 pounds with just the diet. I just reached my second goal of 250 pounds. My next goal is to transition to a lower fat and slightly higher in carbs diet as I want to start to incorporate resistance training and jump roping into my schedule. I'm wondering what your daily meals look like in regard to getting enough protein to build muscle while still cutting. I'm 6'3 and would like to lean down to 225 while starting adding more muscle. Thanks for your time. You've been very encouraging in helping me focus on bettering myself. Great question, Kevin. I want to say first and foremost that I'm never, I never have the idea really that I'm building muscle while I'm cutting. I'm just trying to retain every gram of muscle that I have. And so in order to do that, I eat enough protein and I also uh, use all my muscles. I, I use them and I progressively overload them over time. And so they're never going to be an option for my body to consume while it's in a caloric deficit. That's what I'm doing. Um, the, the meals I'm eating, I tend to eat... Uh, on on um on days that i have i have more carbs on days that i exercise and slightly less carbs on days that i don't and on the days that i don't i then increase my fats a little bit uh but i'm eating about two pounds of lean meat a day plus 
a couple protein shakes. Um, and the, the, like the meal would look like a, a typical meal would be a chicken breast, some broccoli or cauliflower or some kind of vegetable, like a, a small handful of vegetables and some rice or some whole wheat bread or a sweet potato. That's what a meal looks like. Mm-hmm. Or even pasta, but I don't really eat pasta very often. How come? Because it sucks without olive uh, oil and cheese all and the sauce. Fat stuff, yeah. It sucks. Right. I was so excited about eating pasta, and then I ate some dry pasta with salt, and I was like, this sucks. Yeah. I'm not into it. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Great. Yeah. Thanks for your question, Kevin. If you have a question that you'd like answered, please email it to us at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.